Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Health Care on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. Today, we'll be getting the physician's perspective on our healthcare system. You know, there's some 700,000 doctors in the United States, and I'm sure many of them look at things very differently. But there's one organization that attempts to bring doctors together and provide input um, to government, uh, to education, to ethics uh, for physicians in a group, and that is the American Medical Association. You're going to hear their view whenever you hear uh, important stories on our healthcare system. Today, we speak with American Medical Association President, Dr. Cecil Wilson. Dr. Wilson, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. To start, um, why don't we just start by telling our listeners what the American Medical Association is. Well, first, thank you for having me, and and to important talk about what I consider a very important subject. The, the American Medical Association is the professional association for the physicians of America. Uh, it was founded on uh, uh, principles relating to education, quality, ethics, and advocacy. And actually, I, I think its mission statement gives a good sense of of what the AMA is about, and and that statement goes to promote the art and science of medicine and the betterment of public health. So this is um, to promote public health. So I, I like to think of the AMA as providing the physician's perspective on how to make our healthcare system better. I think that's a fair observation, and clearly uh, that's why the AMA has been involved over the past several years pointing toward uh, health system reform and then uh, during the process last year and into this year being constructively engaged in uh, seeking to get health system reform that would produce better, a better health care system for America for the, for the patients and the physicians who take care of them. Let's, we're going to launch into that in a little bit. Before we do, let me make sure the listeners understand you know, who's in the AMA. Is it all American physicians? The AMA is a voluntary association, so it's, it's all American physicians who want to belong to the American Medical Association. Clearly not all do, but uh, there are uh, almost a quarter of a million physicians who are members of the wow. American Medical Association. 250, roughly 250,000 members. That's correct. And, and how do you structure something like that? Well, the, so the, the AMA is basically a representative democracy, and what that means is that we have a House of Delegates that meets twice a year, and every state 
medical society in the country and every specialty society in the country send delegates to that House of Delegates, and they develop policy for the American Medical Association. That's the policy arm of the association, and based on that policy, then they elect a board of trustees that's responsible for implementing the policy and obviously are supported by our professional staff, and that staff is housed uh, the majority of probably 80% are housed in our headquarters in Chicago and the other 20% in our uh, uh, headquarters in Washington, D.C. As I say, it had to be Washington. So much going on there. Exactly. As a dermatologist, I've been more involved with our um, dermatology society, and I get the sense that the organization begins to take on a little bit of a life of its own where the, the professional staff, um, you know, has their way of doing things and such. Does, does the physician board of trustees and the policy arm, is, is, do they have like, um, do they steer this thing like a Miata or is it more like an um, aircraft carrier? Well, any, I think that that's an interesting observation, and I think the fair, fair, fair response to that is to say any large organization tends to look more like an aircraft carrier than, than some agile other, other form of structure. But having said that, the, the control and the direction is pretty direct. Uh, the House of Delegates sets policy, and the board implements the policy, and the, the the management and staff work for the board. Uh, the board meets uh, a number of times a year, a minimum of four to five times a year, meets more often if it needs to, either by conference call or face-to-face -face meetings to be sure that policy is being implemented. And, and a critical part of that is that we have a fairly well-developed strategic planning process which goes on year after year. And each year, uh, the board, based on input from the House of Delegates and from other members of the association, develops a strategic plan. It then gives the staff of the AMA the responsibility of putting together a budget to implement that plan. The board approves that, and then you go forward. And then on a regular basis throughout the year, the uh, staff gives reports to the board which say we've met our goals or we're working on our goals or where we are. So historically, or even today, what, what are some of the key initiatives that the AMA is undertaking? Well, historically, I, historically, I think it's a, a good uh, place to begin, and that is actually in, when the AMA was founded in 1847, it was founded because people felt at that point that medical education in this country was, and some likened it to a joke. And so Nathan Davis, who was a delegate to his state to meeting in New York, recommended that the physicians across the country get together to form an association with the goal of elevating the standards of medical education. At that first meeting, they, the, one of the first committees they, they developed was a, a medical an education committee as well as an ethics committee. And so those two parts of what the profession is have been what the AMA does has done throughout the years. And as a matter of fact, there's some things related to education that uh, a lot of people are not aware of. One is that, that the body that accredits all medical schools in the United States and Canada, uh, it's called the Liaison Committee on Medical Education, or LCME, is a body that is run jointly by the American Medical Association 
and the American Association of Medical Colleges. And so the, the education role of the AMA is, has continued to be strong. We also have in the area of ethics a council on ethical and judicial affairs that, that uh, publishes uh, recommendations and observations about ethics of the profession, which are widely worldwide recognized and, and also recognized in courts when they, they make a variety of rulings. So that's a part of what the AMA does that, that some people may not be as aware of because a lot of what we do that's very visible has to do with trying to influence public policy in Washington as well as in state legislatures around the country. And, of course, the work we've done most recently on health system reform is a very uh, visible part of that. Uh, a couple of other things that I might mention. One is is developing performance uh, standards uh, for quality of care. We have, for the last 10 years, have uh, joined together specialist societies and others, over 100 organizations, to develop performance guidelines for physicians based on science, and that's through what we call our Physicians Consortium for Performance Improvement. Another, I think, uh, interesting uh, area of work has to do with disaster preparedness over the last five or six years, particularly following Cortina, as well as the tsunamis in East Asia, we have ramped up our Department of Disaster Preparedness. So when disasters occur, as in Katrina, as in the earthquakes in Haiti, the AMA is immediately involved working with the Department of Defense, uh, Department of State, uh, federal governments, local governments to try to coordinate a public health response to disasters of, of any kind. Well, that's news to me. Um, and probably to our listeners, too. I did not know that that was a role that the AMA played. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And, and we have, um, as I say, the, those very close relationships uh, with uh, the structures within, within our federal government. And, and we have a disaster preparedness plan so that when something like Haiti happens, within just a few hours, our disaster preparedness team will be meeting say, how can we participate in an effective manner? We also, by the way, actually provide a training uh, for those workers who will work in areas of, uh, of disasters and have, over the last six or seven years, educated some 60 or 70,000 uh, volunteers, both physicians and others, people who, who now have training and, and who are responding to disasters within the states and around the world. I've had representatives of the Red Cross on on the past. This sounds like something they are very much dedicated to. Is this something you coordinate with them or an independent effort? Well, no, we coordinate with, with everyone who's involved. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Red Cross, um, well, and it would probably be unfair of me to characterize their work. Um, a lot of what they do, of course, is to provide funds. And, we, and when we... Uh, the other thing we usually do in association with a disaster is to direct people who want to provide to give money, uh, direct them to agencies, particularly like the Red Cross. Uh, we also uh, have a registry of physicians who would like to volunteer to help but don't know where to go. And, and so we keep that registry so that various agencies, the Red Cross, Department of Defense, and others uh, can then come to that registry identify physicians who want to volunteer to help and, and coordinate that help so they'll know where to go. And, and certainly Haiti, the, the disaster in Haiti, was the most recent example of that where a lot of people wanted to volunteer 
And if everyone just descended on Haiti all en masse, uh, then you, you wouldn't have an effective effort, and so you do need that corporate, uh, coordination, and, and we try to help with that. I, I love your reticence about not wanting to describe what somebody else does. I, you know, I think there's a real tendency for people um, to, to make mistakes about other folks when they try to describe what other folks are doing. I, I appreciate your, your willingness to, you know, focus on what you guys do, which is terrific. And I, I get the sense, Dr. Wilson, that this is a naturally very difficult job you have because the kind of people who go into a field like medicine, really bright, innovative people who like to get out there on their own and take responsibility for stuff and have things done their way, um, aren't the, they're probably like herding cats. Well, and, and that is the analogy that, that comes to mind. Uh, certainly we have seen that in our work on health system reform. We made a decision early on that we were going to be a constructive part of the process. And so what has happened as a result of that is that while physicians on balance have agreed on what the goal should be, the coverage, the reform of insurance, the, the management of, of costs, the improvements in regard to quality, there's a lot of agreement there around that. But physicians have differed sometimes very forcibly on what the strategy and tactics would be. And in, in some ways, the, the fact that the AMA elected to be what we call constructively engaged, to do our persuading and arguing inside the room rather than drawing lines in the sand or standing on the street corner and complaining, uh, some of our members have felt uncomfortable with that uh, because the issues are so uh, critical to, to what they do. They're critical to the health of this nation, and people do feel strongly about them. So. We have uh, we have recognized the challenge of herding cats, but but in fairness to physicians, uh, the whole country has been in that mode. There's been so much uh, partisanship and rhetoric and demagoguery that it has been it's sometimes difficult for us to have enlightened conversations about which way we ought to go, or even to tolerate differences of opinion. So it's not been easy. Uh, we uh, we believe that with the Affordable Health Care Act, that this nation has done something really remarkable. Uh, however, it, it is not perfect. It's what we would call the first of many steps, and we, we, have, we need to continue to improve on that legislation and to be sure that it is implemented in a responsible way that, and uh, to um, going forward to when things that sounded like they were good don't work out and to make changes. Along these same lines, you mentioned performance standards as one of the current initiatives, and I would imagine that you would have had this – how did you phrase it? You phrased it so nicely. Differences of opinions about from physicians about um, – I don't know if the right word – collaborating over performance standards. Well, I think the, the critical thing and, and in regard to performance standards or performance measures is that they have to be done by the profession. And that's why our Physicians Consortium for Performance Improvement has really been so successful. This is not a government effort. It is done by uh, physicians based on the best science, and, and it's done by the people in each of the specialties who have the most expertise in that area. So. That, those then are the kind of performance uh, measures that physicians can rely on because they are based on, on science. 
uh, where physicians start getting apprehensive or concerned is if they think there's outside influence on those kinds of things. And, and we have, uh, by having the groups do this, uh, that we've had to do the, the standards, but we think that we're in a good position. The, the other thing is that this effort has been incredibly successful. These performance measures they, that are being done by the, the PCPI, the Physician Consortium for Performance Improvement, are really becoming one of the main standards for performance measures in this country. Uh, they are utilized in the, the Medicare's Physician Quality Reporting Initiative. There are provisions within the health system reform legislation that they will be a part of measures that, that are uh, recognized. Uh, in addition, the consortium, the, the PCPI, is now uh, mod- in the process of modifying those performance measures so that as that they can be embedded in electronic health records so that the the goal will be that when physicians are into health information technology with electronic health record, they can have the latest scientific information at their fingertips at the point of care where they're seeing patients and, and we believe will will be one of the things that helps us to continue to improve the quality of medical care uh, in this country. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. We're speaking today with Dr. Cecil Wilson, president of the American Medical Association. Well, I'm sure our audience most desperately wants to know what you think about the specifics in this health system reform legislation. There's a, a lot of people promoting scary stuff that I just can't imagine is what's really intended by by the measure. What are some of the highlights? Well, I think, first of all, you're absolutely right. There, there's been a lot of scare tactics, and, and certainly uh, going through last summer and fall, the, the business about death panels was just one of the more egregious of those, so that people have felt free to say things that were clearly not based in fact and were clearly wrong and clearly did uh, frighten people, and, uh, and for good reason. And so... Uh, that has been a part of the sort of the partisan rhetoric that has surrounded this issue. The, the big things about this legislation is that because of this legislation, 32 million people who are currently un, uninsured, and we know people who are uninsured are at greater risk of being sicker and dying sooner, they will have insurance and have that coverage. And that's 32 million people. In addition, the tens of millions of people who now have insurance will know that they won't lose it because of a pre-existing condition or they won't have treatment stopped because they've reached a lifetime cap on the provision of, uh, of uh, coverage. Uh, that is just major, and uh, th- that is a, a big part of the thing that is so ben- it's going to be so beneficial uh, to uh, the citizens of this country. Let me, let me just reinforce that. You know, in my day-to-day practice, you know, I see patients stockpile medicines because they're afraid they might lose their job or lose their insurance. And um, having um, a more stable insurance system, I think, is going to make it much easier for us to take care of our patients. Well, and certainly that is the case. And I, I still remember the patient I had a couple of years ago, and I he had high blood pressure for which he was on treatment. And and he, he just didn't appear for about a year, and he finally came back. And I said, well, you know, where have you been? Because we had scheduled appointments along the way. He said, you know, I, Doc, I lost my job, 
and I was too embarrassed to come and see you. And, of course, I reemphasized what I always did, and that is, you know, don't worry about that. Come to see me. You need to be treated. But So those kinds of things will, will not happen. And, and, for example, someone who is employed who would like to start their own business, they don't do that now because they they would lose they would lose their insurance in that process. So I, th- this is major, and uh, it and those are the the in, those changes along with uh, streamlining and modernizing insurance claims processing, along with some improvements, particularly in the area of Medicare for preventive uh, services, making those uh, more available. And there's also the beginnings of work on improving quality of care, continuity of care, and also dealing with what is one of the big cost issues for this country, and that is health behaviors, cigarette smoking, alcohol abuse, obesity, sedentary lifestyle. These are all things that are in the legislation, and and all of those together uh, will give us some hope that we will make a system that is, it is better and better serves patients. From the physician's perspective or from the AMA's perspective, what was missing? Well, the big thing this mission, uh, let me just mention two of those. The big thing is the Medicare uh, payment. Uh, and this, this actually predates health system reform, but the problem is we have a formula uh, for the Medicare system that decides how much physician will be paid to take care of Medicare patients. The formula is just not working, and the result is that for the last eight years, each year, physicians have been threatened with cuts in payments. Uh, each year, Congress steps up at the last minute and blocks those, but it, it does not correct the system and also does not increase payments to keep up with the cost of providing care. So just the inflation rate during that eight years uh, means that we're about 22% below where we, we would have been if, if you'd kept up with that. And so Congress uh, has has not come in and fix the problem. And and right now, uh, if Congress does not do anything by December 1, there will be a 23% cut in payments. And if Congress does not do anything uh, by January 1, there will be an additional uh, 6.7% cut, so about 30% cut in payments. Uh, This will devastate the Medicare program, and that is a major problem that was not addressed in the legislation has to be addressed because the reality is that a lot of the things that are provided for in the Affordable Care Act, the health system reform legislation, are dependent on a stable uh, federal uh, health program like Medicare and Medicaid. And and without that stability, uh, we're going to be challenged in trying to implement a lot of other things related to health system reform. I want to I understand this is one of the two key issues that you think are missing. I want to make sure our listeners understand what the problem is. As I understand it, Medicare would pay out a fixed dollar amount, and then as there's more and more visits dividing up that pie, then the what a doctor would get paid per visit begins to drop, and that that that's what needs to be fixed, that we, we don't want and you're doing the same amount of work, you should get paid the same amount. Is that is that the issue with that so formula? That, yeah, I think that that is that approaches it. And what the, basically what this formula says is it decides what the volume of Medicare services should be for the coming year based on what the um, 
the gross domestic product is for the country, and and makes and, and the, the problem is that that has not accounted for a variety of things that are that would make the cost of health care grow. More senior citizens, a more chronic disease, advances in medical technology, and so the formula has just has failed to keep up. And and what happens then is if you have more services, uh, say last year than the formula said you should have then physician services are scheduled to be cut to make up for that uh, the coming year. And as a result, uh, we're in, we're, physicians are now being paid the same as they were uh, eight years ago. The, the second of the main things missing from the health care bill was what? Is the second uh, is uh, tort reform, medical liability reform. Now, the legislation does provide for some uh, pilot projects for alternative uh, tort reform, what we know is, though, that, that caps on non-economic damages are, have been proven in states like California and Texas, Louisiana, Florida, and others to, to help get a handle on uh, the, the tort system, which is, uh, has added to the cost for medical care because it is, it is so unreliable. Uh, exorbitant amounts of money are spent, not uncommonly, on, on non-meritorious suits. And so to get... Uh, a handle on that. We need reform the caps on non-economic damages. Now, what we and the problem with that this system is that the physicians are fearful of being hauled into court 90 percent of the time on a non-meritorious suit, but being sued in any event. And because of that, uh, when they see patients, they may order tests that they wouldn't ordinarily order uh, for fear of being hauled into court if. if they didn't do that test, and that's what we call defensive medicine. Defensive medicine is adding some 70 to $120 billion a year to the cost of medical care in this country, and that's another one of the, the costs, the increasing costs that we're trying to deal with. So uh, that is that was touched on in the reform legislation. We have a lot more to do. Uh, the alternative uh, medical liability reforms that that will actually change the system and make it more reliable are things that we need to look at. What things like we call a medical courts, where you actually have medical experts determining whether the wrong was done, uh, administrative determination of awards, where you you have a formula that decides how much you would pay based on what the injury was, not based on emotional response uh, that a lawyer might uh, gin up, if you will. Uh, also, things what we call safe harbors. In other words, a physician who practice based on scientific guidelines would be able to use that as a defense in court to say, well, there was a bad result, but the physician did what was right. And so uh, we think that those are things that, if they turn out to be helpful, will actually give us a, a system, tort system, that will more reliably and expeditiously compensate those who've been injured and at the same time not unnecessarily and inappropriately all physicians into court uh, to be sued based on non-meritorious cases. We just we just published uh, a survey just within the last week, which showed that that in this country, 95 uh, there have been 95 lawsuits for every hundred doctors. Now, obviously, not every doctor gets sued, but that's the order of magnitude. If you're an obstetrician in this country under the age of 40, that your chances are one in two that you've already been sued. In other words, 50 percent have already been sued. And, and uh, that's a system that is, that is just not working well. No, that's not. Okay. 
Well, I, I am so appreciative of your time and, and want to be respectful of it. Um, in these last minute or two, do you have any final thoughts you want to uh, share with our listeners about how to improve their health or our health care system? Well, first of all, in regard to the health care system, I, I think people uh, should recognize that, that we the reason we are involved with trying to improve the system is that there's, there's some things that need to be fixed. Uh, what I would recommend is that as you hear stories, you check them out. Don't assume the worst and, and start looking for the things that are clearly in the legislation that are going to make a difference in, in the lives of, of Americans. Uh, to the issue of what people can do for their health, I think it's important to recognize that when you, when you look at what determines the health of people in this country, uh, only 10% of it has to do with access to care. That's going to see a doctor. 20% has to do with genetic inheritance, and another 20% the environment, so clean air, clean water. 50% of the determinants of health of people in this country has to do with health behavior. So I would, I would say to, to people around the country, you have it within your power uh, by exercising, by eating well, by maintaining your weight, by not smoking, by being uh, careful in terms of alcohol consumption to have a big impact on your health and your longevity. Thank you so much for the, that, that, that wisdom today. Thank you. I think one of the take-home messages from listening to Dr. Wilson uh, has to be about politics. Um, Dr. Wilson, uh, clearly a very level-headed guy. He's dealing with an organization of 250,000 uh, separate individuals, each of whom has their own ideas and and. He and his board of trustees and, and, and their representative democracy has to come up with, you know, uh, let's get along and, and, and be constructive. Let's be a constructive part of the process together. And uh, as he laments, uh, as probably many of us lament, uh, our, our system seems to be moving farther and farther away from that. I think the, um, the Dr. Wilsons of this world... Um, uh, well, we need to rely on them more to to help synthesize uh, our common goals, to help us recognize our common goals, even though many times it seems that um, that we have just very different ways of trying to achieve those goals. I mean, in regard to health care, I think there's there's no doubt about it. everybody everybody wants the same thing for people to have better health. Question is how to get there and and all too often each, each person thinks they know the right way and that other folks are doing things um, to, um, for, for their own betterment at the expense of other people. And, well, there may be some of that. I think the vast majority of folks really are trying their best to come up with ways of, of, of achieving what really is, is common goals across uh, the various specialties of medicine, with uh, across the various... Um, components of our political system. Well, I hope the Dr. Wilsons of this world have, um, have more success. Uh, next week on our program, we'll be welcoming back Dr. Cindy Kelker. Uh, she's going to help us again with uh, ways that we can save money on our healthcare system. And she has a new book out on how to do that. So that should be very interesting. Uh, our theme music today was, as always, composed by the incomparable Michael Zioli. 
until we um, get together again, I wish you the very best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com. DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.